Hey everyone, thanks for joining me on the first ever episode of the Slice of Entrepreneurship podcast. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. I'm so excited about our first guest, uh, Bruce Cleveland, uh, author of the book, Traversing the Traction Gap. Uh, he's industry executive, he has lots of investing experience, and we're thrilled to bring him on today. So, Bruce, great to have you here today. Hey, Jared, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You're, you've you've done so much, so I always struggled with the with the background. So I'm going to let you give your your background uh, to the audience here today. Okay, I'll just see if I can make it short and sweet. I've my first uh, first experience in Silicon Valley was with a little tiny startup called Oracle, about a hundred people at the time, and uh, that went on to some I would say modicum of success. <laughs> there, I was uh, the head of the Unix product line division and uh, learned a lot from a number of different people, um, Larry Ellison, of course, and also Tom Siebel. Tom went on to create Siebel Systems, the, the first uh, category creator of, C of CRM, customer relationship management. Um, I left Oracle and went to uh, Apple and ran several engineering divisions there for many years. And then as um, Siebel Systems took off, I joined Siebel again, well under employee 100, maybe employee 50, something, it doesn't matter, some some small number. We were about 2 million in revenue. Four or five years later, we found ourselves 2 billion in revenue, uh, about 10,000 employees. I, I still believe it's the fastest growing US company um, in history. Um, I could be wrong. There might be a couple that have exceeded that now, but um, the only reason I bring it up is because it presented a lot of problems, uh, a lot of issues with acquiring great talent, um, building a category, just a number of things that impacted me personally in how I viewed companies, et cetera, um, from, uh, from Apple and, uh, and then joining Siebel Systems. The, uh, I joined or we sold Siebel to Oracle, and I chose not to go back to Oracle. I decided to try investing. I, tried, I joined a venture capital firm, did that for about 10, uh, 15 years. I invested in mostly ideas that weren't really companies at the time. Uh, a company like Marketo was just three people. Uh, may have had a dog involved, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> anyway, three people, uh, no revenue, no product. Just had to. Uh, just, they just had a fantastic idea um, around market automation. Uh, so I was a first investor in that, did a company called Doximity, which had a recent IPO a couple of years ago, Velocity, C3 AI, a number of, you know, four or five companies that went on to be billion dollar plus outcomes that were just ideas at the time that I invested or I participated in them. And I learned a lot from that side of the table too. Actually, a lot of things that I did wrong as a venture capitalist that I had to rectify <laughs> and later on. But um, so that's my background operating uh, 25 years. I, I actually left venture a couple of years ago, four years ago to uh, join Tom Siebel for, uh, to be a CMO at C3 AI and uh, to help him and the rest of the team take the company public, which we did in December, 2020. I stayed for another year. And, uh, and then I just said after 42 years of doing this, that, um, that I think I pulled, my, I pulled my oar long enough and that I was gonna retire from the operating side and the formal investing side to move into some other things that, uh, that I wanted to do. So that's my background. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, I'm, I'm curious because so, so you left the venture world to go back to, to operating. We see this from time to time. In your particular instance, what was it that led you to want to get back into that, you know, that like full-time operating role um, with, with one of your past investments at the time? 
Well, for me, it's probably a different reason than pro- than maybe a lot of others. And and the reason I did it, I said, look, you know, I'm uh, at the time I was, you know, 62, 63 years old. I felt I had a couple more years left in me and across my portfolio of investments, um, where could I um, add the most value? Uh, being on the board is I'll just leave it at being on the board. Um, so I, I thought I was an investor um, in C3 AI um, at personally and then professionally through venture capital. And I thought this is probably the place that I could add the most value and it could generate the, the biggest return on my two years or three years that I wanted to continue um, working overall. So and then I have um, a 35 plus year relationship with Tom Siebel. Uh, and I knew he wanted to take the company public, and I felt that was an area that I could help with as his chief marketing officer. And um, and so that's um, that's what led me to do it. I actually called Tom up and said, "Hey, is there something I could do to help?" I didn't think I was going to be the CMO. I just thought, well, I could be a product manager. It doesn't really matter if I could add value. And uh, so I, I took on that role, and we uh, we wrote an S one and did a bunch of other things that were pretty challenging to do uh, during the pandemic, and uh, managed to get the company out um, before kind of everything shut down, you know, last year. So um, anyway, uh, better to be lucky than good, I guess. Um, but working for Tom is uh th- that's an iconic experience he is uh definitely there are only a few made like him and i'm very appreciative of his uh support of me over the years since i was probably 23 years old it's it's uh it's always interesting and you are the stories seem to differ when i do hear of like vcs that go back into like an operating role with one of their portfolio companies but i'm all i always have to ask that whenever uh i hear an investor go go into that uh operating role within a portfolio company We'll we'll dive into different pieces of what you're doing today, Bruce, but can you give us the highlight and then we'll circle back to one of the super interesting things that you told me you're doing. And I'm like, we need to dive more into this on the show. Uh, but just give us a highlight right now before we dive into some of the, the cool parts about your book. Uh, but what are you up what you're up to today? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I said retire, that didn't mean, um, you know, go sit on the couch and use my walker to get to the fridge. So the. Um, when I said retire, what I meant was working for somebody else, doing thing, having to show up, you know, seven days a week to to do something, whether it's on the venture side or on the on the operating side. What I want to do is things that I felt like doing. Uh, and so, one of the things about uh, writing the book, uh, traversing the traction gap, is that a number of companies have come after me to say, "Hey, can you help us?" in this process. And I'm very selective about what I will do and what I will work on, um, but I pick a couple. And uh, so I'm working with them. One is to build a new category uh, called community commerce marketing, which um, I believe is going to be a very successful new category. Uh, the company I'm working with is Cipio.ai, C-I-P-I-O.ai. And uh, their idea, it's a pretty simple idea. And that is if you can um, identify and capture, authenticate, and, um, and activate and compensate advocates of your company that those people that network that community of interest is far better at making claims about your company than you are and to the degree that you can find these people and work with them uh, you can dramatically lower the cost of demand gen and you can dramatically increase uh, your conversion rates uh, the evidence is just there i mean i've seen it i've done it i've worked with these guys i've done it in the past so for me 
this was a super exciting area. I love building a new category like we did with C3AI called Enterprise AI, which did not exist uh, before I uh, joined the company. So, well, it existed. I mean, a couple of people use the term, but it didn't really exist as a true legitimate category that it does now. So I like doing that. It's the fun part for me. And to the degree that um, I like to actually write the words with the company, um, go through the editing process. Um, I'm pretty... I'm pretty strict about how to do it. And uh, and there's companies that don't really want to do it, and that's fine. Um, you know, but my criteria, the paywall is read the book. If you read the book and then the management team reads the book and they decide it's this, these are worthwhile principles to that I've codified and would like to, to apply them to their company, um, then I'm... I'm interested, you know, it's, it's, I really like around the, uh, focusing on this whole, it's AI is a misnomer, as we know, it's machine learning. AI is, you know, that's Terminator and, you know, other, other kind of stuff, but MLs type stuff, applying, you know, these new technologies like chat GPT and others, I think are really, really interesting and will have a dramatic impact um, on the technology industry and society as a whole. So I like having a role in it. Um, pretty selective. You know, I can only work with maybe one or two companies at a time. So that's what I'm doing right now is just uh, working with a couple companies, uh, helping them to develop their category. And then once that's done, my work's kind of done. You know, they kind of know what they need to do. And I'm not going to show up, you know, seven days a week to do all the the, the really hard labor that's required. Um, and they know that. And I've already done it for 42 years. So I'm not going to do it again. One of the things that you and I were talking about, Bruce, uh, before the recording was uh, how you're helping. You don't, unless you want to mention them, you don't have to. Uh, how you're helping a select few companies apply the traction gap principles uh, that you discuss in your book. Uh, can you talk about, you know, any of that, or just more broadly, how you know startups can best start applying those traction gap principles that you laid out in the book? Um, I know you mentioned when we were talking through this, right? And well, and I agree with you. One of the, my, my favorite parts, and I do have your book here, so I got to share everyone, right? And you have behind you. Um, one of my favorite parts of, of your book is that you're actually able to take away information and then apply it more easily. And, and you mentioned that was one of your hopes, right? And when you were writing this, um, that was a really long question, but <laughs> diving into how you're helping some startups apply these traction gaps and then how uh, other startups can start applying these principles. Yeah. So, you know, for the people who haven't read the book, and I would imagine it would be the majority of your audience, um, but the book basically is a prescriptive guide. I wrote it as a prescriptive guide. So that way anybody could read through it and then figure out where they were and then apply the principles for the where the maturity of their company um, place them. And so the, the, the first it's a, it's a continuum, uh, that goes from ideation to scale. There's value inflection points. Why I, I call them value inflection points, because if you can reach them, they dramatically increase the value of your company by diminishing the risk uh, for investors and increasing the probability that you will be successful. I borrowed some industry vernacular called a minimum viable product that guys like uh, Eric Ries and Steve Blank and others have, have, have certainly uh, propagated. So everybody understands that concept. And I said, well, there's these other pretty important value inflection points besides MVP, something called minimum viable category, something called minimum viable repeatability, and then minimum viable traction. And so I go on, basically break the, break the process down to go to product where you're building a product, 
go to market where you need to now take that product to market and then finally go to scale where you try to scale the company. And there's underneath that, underneath that framework, there's, I describe four architectural pillars, product, revenue, team, and systems. And each one of those pillars takes a certain point of prominence depending upon the maturity of your company. If you're at minimum viable category at that point, it's really around you, the, the team um, that you have. It's less about your product, less about um, the, the other elements. As you move on and go into go to market, now revenue becomes important uh, clearly. And then finally, go to, when you go to scale, uh, systems takes a point of prominence so you can process things from contact to cash as fast and as, as efficiently as possible. So the book is a prescriptive guide that has a vernacular, a taxonomy associated with it. So that way your investors and your management team can all have an objective discussion about where you really are. So that's the purpose of, that's the book itself. And the reason I wrote it, quite frankly, was I, I got really disappointed with the venture community, which I didn't feel was being honest with entrepreneurs. When uh, they would come in and present, the, we would listen to an idea. Um, and um, in many cases, we would say, hey, that was great. Thanks for coming in. And the, the, the entrepreneur would leave, probably feeling pretty good about you know, where, where this ended. And, uh, and then after they left, what I would hear was, mm, there's no way we're going to invest in this. And I would just say, well, I was a relatively new uh, venture capitalist at the time. And I go, why aren't we being honest? Let's tell them what the issues are. They go, oh, well, we don't want to be too harsh because if we are, then we won't get a shot at this if it's successful later on. And I went, well, I don't think that's really a fair way to treat the entrepreneur. I think we need to give them solid feedback. And so what I wanted to do was expose what what are venture capitalists really looking for when you go to present to them? Uh, what are what do they want to hear? Why what are they looking for from your presentation? And um, the truth is, you know, you all you all entrepreneurs want to produce a demo. You want going in fact most of the, the the presentation is about your 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 product. The fact is is that virtually unless it's a, a consumer product. Um, you're not likely, or a medical product, you're not likely to be a user of the product that's being presented to you. You probably never used a product like that. You probably never worked in a company where you needed to use a product that's being presented to you. So you're, we as the venture community are terrible at figuring out what, you know, well, what's the usefulness of this product. More important is what others are, are saying about the product, the people who would actually use it. And so what we are interested in as a venture group and what we are qualified to do is to evaluate whether this is a great financial product. That is, what, how is this going for X amount of dollars invested? What, you know, Y dollars are going to come out of it? Hopefully a multiple of what I've invested and how long will it take? So as entrepreneurs, you have to understand that you can't just give your, your customer deck and throw in a financial slide into it and say, that's my investor deck. You have to understand you're presenting uh, a, a, um, a product, a financial product to them amongst many other financial products they need to make a decision against to decide, well, is this going to happen faster or slower than other things I've seen? Do I believe there's a larger TAM, a total addressable market, or a smaller one? So you, you really need to change the way your language and your presentation to fit the audience. And that audience is a financial audience first and foremost. Yeah, they want to hear about what the product is. Yeah, they look at this stuff and it's pretty cool. A lot of people were engineers or whatever before. But the truth of the matter is at the end of the day, if you came in with a black box 
and you could prove that you throw a dollar in and 10 came out of it, they'd be, they'd throw capital at it and they, they wouldn't ask another single question. So the, um, as long as it wasn't counterfeit. So the, um, the net of it is that I, I think that entrepreneurs are so invested in their, in their product, their idea and, and what they fail to realize is that the group that they're presenting to that's going to back them um, they too can be invested in that. In, in some cases, many are experts in the field that they're that they're discussing. But for the most part, um, you'll find that it's a team of of investors that have to make the decision. And that team, not all of them, many of them may not be familiar with the with the, that company in the market that's been brought in by one of the partners. And I felt it was important to write a book, a prescriptive guide that said, "Hey, entrepreneurs." This is what they're really looking for. This is why they're looking for it. This is why you're not getting an investment, or this is why you might get an investment from them if you can present your ideas in this way. And I think it it hit a nerve. You know, I, I don't know how many venture capitalists read the book. Quite frankly, I I read I actually did write it for them as well to give them um, a language vernacular um, to use with their entrepreneurs, with their with their companies, um, because it's really great shorthand to get to the root cause issues. When you can say we're at MVC, minimum viable category, across product revenue team and systems, this is where we are. And then I provided a bunch of quantitative data and evidence in the book to suggest, here's what you might wanna be doing at that particular moment in time. And this is what you, your team, you and your team might need to focus on. And then more importantly, not just um, what you might do, how to do it. Um, so how is a pretty important part of this. And most teams I've found, aren't comprised of what I would call market engineers. So I've invested in lots of great product engineering, but the companies that went on to billion-dollar successes, their CEOs and management teams were innate market engineers. And it's a term I came up with to describe storytelling, category creation, messaging, positioning, those elements that turn out to be far more important than the actual product itself. Product, Great product is table stakes. Market engineering is what differentiates the the 80% who fail to the the 20% who succeed, mostly. It's not in every case, but I'd say for the most part, I'm, it's, it's a, an accurate statement. So that being said, Bruce, what skills do you think entrepreneurs need to have to be most successful in the early stages of a business versus the later stages? Or do you think it can can be a mixture of, uh, of a few over all. The, I mean, I've seen people that can run an early stage company, but could never run a late stage company. And there's no problem with that. Right. That's completely normal. Um, but would be curious about where you see those, uh, those skill gaps, what that looks like at the earliest stage versus at the latest stage. So obviously in the early stage, somebody has to have an idea, you know, hopefully the founder, um, an, an idea that's worthy of a, of a market to pursue. And they should have the technical skills. We're talking about, again, we're talking about technology companies here. Um, medical, you know, medical skills. You know, what, but, or biotech. The bio, there needs to be experts in whatever the field is who can actually build whatever the offering is uh, that is going to eventually find its way to market. Um, it, not everybody has every one of those skills, but it should be a team of people with a founder who believe that they can, they have a great idea, they have some evidence. They've done some market research to verify they have some evidence. By the way, many don't do that. Um, 
what they and what they should do is come in with that market evidence that suggests that if they were to build a new category of product or, or an offering, that there is a um, sizable market for it. And it's not just conjecture or qualitative in nature. It's um, it's it's based off of um, the what I call in the book market IQ. It's actually doing real market research. I mean, if you go to any great research university like a Johns Hopkins or whatever, um, you're required to do research. You're required to back up your your um, your uh, statements with um, probability scores that are that are evidence based. And so um, I see very few companies walk. I mean, I've never actually uh, in life sciences. I've seen this, but not in in tech. I don't see anybody coming in showing me. Okay, show me your um, your um, uh, p zero, your null value for probability. You know, and, and show me the quantitative evidence, the surveys you perform that are quantitative and qualitative in nature. Um, that are statistically relevant that would prove to somebody at this stage, because you don't have a product necessarily, you don't have any revenue or de minimis revenue, you need something else, you need a proxy for this. And so I would say this is one of the things um, startup engineer, startup entrepreneurs need to focus on. And then they need to be really self-evaluating, which is if you know you have to engineer a market, are you a Mark Benioff, Tom Siebel, Larry Ellison, Steve Jobs? Do you have the ability to persuade and conscript uh, a large group of people into believing things the way you believe them to be, showing them a world that exists today and a world with their product or service or this product that you're building or choose to build um, that how much better the world will be uh, with that? And unfortunately, that these skills don't all sit inside of one person necessarily. So the team really needs to have a number of people in it, people who can communicate really, really effectively. Um, sometimes this is in you know an, a single entrepreneur, and we can probably name them. I named a few of them, right? So there's very few who can do all of this. So I think it's super important to recognize that market engineering skills are what are going to differentiate and ultimately make your company successful amongst all the failures. Uh, product engineering is just table stakes. And I, I know the engineers out there are probably going to cringe when I say this, but I've invested in a lot of companies with really great products that haven't gone on to success. And when I look at it, it's typically because they didn't invest anything in what I would call market engineering. I don't mean marketing per se. I mean market engineering, creating a market, creating awareness that there's a market, creating a name for it, um, convincing in the B2B world groups like Gartner and Forrester and um, Constellation and others to, um, to use that terminology, to place the attributes of the category um, effectively, and then, and only then, position themselves as a brand. The brand and the category are different. And so we don't begin with brand. Brand is all about your, your company. Category is what needs to be created first, the pigeonhole that you will live in, and then you as the pigeon um, will occupy it and, and own it. A great friend of mine, Christopher Lockhead, wrote a book called Play Bigger, and in it demonstrated with evidence that market leaders um, – about 76% of the market um, uh, potential or the market itself, uh, the valuation, the market cap, 76% um, goes to the market leader and the spoils, you know, the rest goes to 
you know, the rest. So you want to be, you need to be the market leader. And the only way to do that is to engineer the market that you want to lead. And I think this is a big mistake by a lot of um, entrepreneurs. The only place I think I would, I would say this isn't true is in probably biotech where it's a small molecule or some kind of revolutionary therapy or something, um, medicine that comes to the fore, a patent is held. And, and then that, um, you know, then you don't necessarily have to create the market for it, but you will, if it's a medical device, you certainly have to do if it's a consumer product and you certainly have to do it if it's a business product. So, um, I'm speaking to, I would say the, the vast majority of companies out there. Um, if you don't think that becoming a market engineer is a critical skill set that you neither either have or acquire, um, then I would think again, because the, the, the world, uh, there's a dustbin of companies that have failed to, uh, to understand this. Thank you so much, Bruce, for sharing that very valuable, uh, wisdom. And I like, I like the terminology too, that, that you gave that. And, uh, I'm going to actually go back and look. Um, I, I think I like that you're saying this term. I don't hear that term often either. Probably we should probably hear it a lot more than, than we do. Um, but also look back at some companies that, that did exactly that. Right. And so you already gave some great examples. Um, I want to shift focus to some of the stuff we talked about early on in the podcast that we have to tell the audience because this is awesome. And I wonder if they could even guess this, Bruce, that you're, that you're doing this right now. But talk us through some of what else you're up to today that's, uh, that's, you know, you're spending your days on. Why don't I give some context to what this is? So um, over the years, I, I learned how to fly um, and became a pilot with an instrument rating. Um, and I learned to fly because I was scared of flying. And so I would figure out ways of not going to some meeting. I realized that was going to be a really severe career impediment if I couldn't get over that. And I figured, well, if I learn it, then maybe um, I'll be less nervous about it. So I learned to fly. And then that was pretty interesting, intellectually and physically, and I enjoyed that. And then, um, uh, I don't know, a few do a dozen years or so later, I said, I'd like to learn to sail. A friend of mine was, and his wife were going to do it, so I, I learned how to sail and uh, ended up um, within a short amount of time buying a pretty amazing sailboat. And my wife and I sailed from so – I took a, a two-year sabbatical and sailed from Sausalito down through Panama went through the Panama Canal and out into the Caribbean and lived in, uh, in the um, West Indies and, uh, and other places for several years. So um, until I became bored, and this is the important part of what I'm about to tell you, um, I finally realized, I go, I have to do things. You know, I have to be actively engaged, I, scrubbing the bottom of the boat, fixing the heads, you know, <laughs> didn't, what, at some point in time became, even though you're hanging off of St. Bart's or, or in St. Martin, I mean, some fantastic places, they're awesome to visit for a while, but month after month after month, um, you know, it just became something that I realized, uh, I'm going back to, to work. And, uh, if I try to retire, I need to find something that would be engaging. So that's the buildup to what I'm about to say. So a few years ago, I knew that my last thing was going to be working for Tom at C3AI. And I realized I need something that's interesting to go do. So happens that my son-in-law um, had been doing this for a while and uh, offered to get me involved in that's racing cars. So I, um, I started out tracking uh, my street car, my BMW, 
and uh, my little M4, which is now a pretty awesome little machine. Um, and then I don't do things lightly. I kind of go all in. So I decided to get really good at this and went through professional courses uh, with Porsche and, uh, and Ferrari. And so I went through their programs and now I'm racing in the national series, uh, Ferrari challenge and a challenge Evo car, which is, a, uh, um, the body is a 488, a type of Ferrari, um, street chassis, and then built up to be a race car. And then a Porsche 992, um, a GT3 cup car, which the street version you might know as a, a GT3, like RS, um, not, not exactly the same close enough. Um, very uncomfortable cars, uh, very fast. And I have um, pro coaches who are accelerating my learning time because I'm not 20. I'm probably 65 this year. So I have a short amount of time I can do this physically. Uh, and so I, um, I hired some really great coaches. One of them was the former teammate of Lewis Hamilton, who I think people, if they follow things like F1, uh, know him. And that my um, my other coach is uh, he's won many races, Daytona and many other things. So these are great people to learn from. They've got, you know, 30. They started when they were karting at five years old and they're, you know, 40 now. And so they're skilled um, and still racing in many cases. Um, very skilled athletes. You, d you can't appreciate how much athleticism is required to do this sport, how much physical even in a 30 minute race, it, it drains you completely. So I'm racing, um, these cars and I'm in the Ferrari challenge this year and I'm in the Porsche, um, the, the sprint challenge series. And, uh, and so I've done a few I've, I've done maybe 12, 13, 14 races this last year, um, both club and uh, nationally ranked races, uh, podiumed a few of them, got my butt kicked in a number of them <laughs> and uh i'm really enjoying it i think this is this is kind of scratching that itch it requires a lot of i'm studying things like i'm going to a suspension course online um just ton of track time i have a simulator at home it's an amazing simulator it's a big giant machine you sit in and it moves in six different dimensions and has different tracks all recorded and so i drive the tracks i'm going to drive um you take the car uh, whether it's a cup car or it's the challenge car you put it onto the track and using an app called iRacing, and there's some others too and uh you can one drive yourself but you can also compete against others and uh and so you get your own licenses and work your way up and it's helping me go from what is um you know effectively artificial intelligence uh and applying and i can take that learning and when i get to the track like i did last week out at homestead in miami uh i knew the track cold i still had there's still a lot of things like g-forces and things that aren't replicated in the in the sim but you learn the track, you learn breaking points, you learn a lot of the things. So you don't have to spend a lot of really expensive time on the track, just learning it. You can spend time on corners that you're not doing exactly right or on um, figuring out breaking points that maybe you're not doing just right. So it's a, um, it's really fun. I really like doing it. Um, it can be terrifying. My first race was at Indianapolis, their road course in the rain um, and so I couldn't even see the cars in front of me doing 150 miles an hour down the straight with water coming across the track, cars spinning in front of you. So it, if you have a, if you have a, um, if you like adrenaline, this will give it to you. And, um, and I've always been active in sports, so it kind of gives me all the things that I was looking for. So that's what I'm up to. I love it. And, and what's, what was more challenging to, to learn? Uh, and which is more 
more scary moments, driving or flying? Flying. Um, although there was one sailing thing that was more terrifying than all of it. Um, but flying, you know, you've got three dimensions to be concerned with. And uh, at one point, I um, uh, we got caught in some inclement weather. And uh, that that's, I'll just leave it as very unpleasant and uh and these planes i fly are not jets with where you can climb out of things you're you're small planes that prop planes that you're that you have to live with it um sailing um when we first set out uh we got caught in a big storm uh coming out of san francisco and um i had never been so cold with (laughs) with only (laughs) only myself uh my wife on board too uh, but um but it was it was very difficult and and then later on we were down in Mexico and, and a lightning storm was happening all around us you know a hundred miles offshore and there's no AAA to come save you and you've got a big giant stick in the in the sky and you're worried that if that lightning hits your boat um, it could punch a hole through the bottom of it and now you're I mean we had a life raft but that's no bueno so there's there's moments you know on the racetrack um, it's funny. I've, I've spun several times, but, um, you know, I, I don't really think about the danger. There's it's, it takes so much of your effort just to concentrate on driving the car. Um, you know, the race is over by the time you realize, okay, the, you know, you, there were some scary moments in it, somebody cut in front of you or whatever. But, uh, for the most part, these cars are really, really well built and, um, you know, they go fast though. The, I mean, the Ferrari is, at Coda, Circuit of the Americas in Austin, uh, the back straight, you're up to 170 miles an hour. And so, um, you know, bad things happen at 170 miles an hour, like if your brakes go out. So the um, there are bad things, but for the most part, I don't really think much about them. And I didn't think much about them when I sailed or when I flew either. And I guess, you know, you can kind of sit and, and uh, sit on your couch and do nothing. Um, in this case, I, I'm enjoying going out and, and, uh, you know, performing a skill. Yeah. You're definitely not doing nothing. You're doing everything. (laughs) And I feel weird asking you this next question, but what's next for you? Um, okay. Well, I think it's a really fair question. And so I'm not committing to this, but it is something I'm thinking about. I think the thing I I'm most proud of in my career, besides having my two kids and my grandkids, um, and my wife, the, um, the thing I'm most proud about, I believe is this book I've written. And uh, I love teaching. I teach. At, I taught at Stanford and Columbia, and you know Harvard, great, great universities, and you know other universities, uh, community colleges too. So it doesn't have to be just you know iconic universities. But I love teaching um, and giving back. And so um, a lot of people ask, well, can you? Cre- what else can you do with this? And I thought, well, what I could do is to create um, an online course program that complements the book, and can there I can have a lot more dynamic material. I can introduce things. I can have guests on who've gone on to use this material, so they can tell their story about what they've done. Um, and I thought about doing this. The um, it it'll take. I mean, it's a commitment, right? I mean, you got to you just like writing a book. I had to commit to getting it done and doing it. This will be a commitment that I have to do. And so, um, this year is kind of the race year, and then twenty twenty four will be if if I decide to do this to create a, a kind of a legacy business around traversing the traction gap. And um, it'll be consist of a consultancy plus this online coursework that allows it to scale. And then, you know, maybe a new addition to the book or whatever. But that's that's kind of what's in the works for me. 
Um, I'll continue to work like with a couple companies like I am. Once they're beyond a certain point, I'll I'll find another couple of companies to work with. And uh, and, you know, that's how I'm going to keep myself busy. Um, so that's kind of what's next for um, for me. Well, I'm really excited for whatever it is you end up doing. I really hope you do uh, pursue uh, building out a formal course for uh, the Traction Gap, though, or some sort of edu uh, additional educational material. I think that would be really great. Um, had the opportunity of going through a lot of the modules that um, this venture firm in Boston put up, uh, Underscore Ventures. Um, they created this like startup secrets thing, but um, you know, I, I really. I really like those modules and being able to go through that. I think any extra layer you can always add, right? You you mentioned it. You can have a lot of takeaways from the book that you can go and apply. If there was something, that would be pretty cool because that's just that extra layer that helps you apply these uh, these principles that you put together even more. I'm, I'm really happy that we were able to have you on here, Bruce, and for you to share your story. And it's, it's so exciting what you've accomplished across your life and, uh, you know, can't wait to stay in touch with you and hear how things continue to go. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me here.